All right, we are back. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Greg Palace. We always do. And uh, we'd like to refer you while we're at it to a talk a couple of weeks back with Stephen J. Harper, which overlaps very much with what Greg Palace has to say, uh, which often concerns itself with Trump misdeeds, past, present, and most importantly, future. I was talking just the other day to a friend of mine on Washington's birthday, because it's also his birthday. I asked if he was paying attention to the fact that at 2.22.22 on 2.22.22, that it was also a Tuesday. He, he said, no, he wasn't, wasn't that, uh, that interested at that particular anomaly. I have to confess, I was talking about it 45 minutes before and 45 minutes afterwards, but I was not looking at the clock at the exact moment in question. Uh, my friend, who I've known since before we were in kindergarten, told me to my great delight that uh, he's listened to something like 300 of these programs. And that he forwarded our interview with uh, Chuck Yeager to his dad, who enjoyed it very much, being a, an aviation person himself. He also gave me a little bit of dirt about one of our classmates from high school, who apparently has now joined a militia. He was a little surprised by that, noting that uh, the person in question was a smart guy. I had to correct him slightly and say he's an otherwise smart guy. We're both lamenting the fact that we've gotten to be a certain age and are surprised at the nature of what's going on around us politically, socially. Here's an example, and I quote from The Week magazine. The National Butterfly Center shut its doors to visitors last week due to threats from right-wing conspiracy theorists who claim the center is a cover for human smuggling and child sex trafficking. People have been showing up with no interest in butterflies, including a GOP congressional candidate from Virginia who came last month looking for signs of human smugglers and got into a physical altercation with its director. Apparently the center is located in Mission, Texas, somewhere near the Mexican border. These claims originated in 2017, when the center sued to stop construction of a section of border wall that would go through the butterfly preserve. Brian Colfodge, an associate of right-wing provocateur Steve Bannon, then claimed, quote, left-wing thugs with a sham butterfly agenda, unquote, were running a, quote, rampant sex trade, unquote. The center's director, Mariana Trevino-Wright, said she took the job expecting to spend time with butterflies and curious visitors. Now, she said, every day my children literally worry about whether I'm going to survive. She now brings a pistol to work. And yes, that's where we are in 2022. Anyway, sometimes we're just so stuck for good news that we we just have to comb through articles that we have and magazines that we have to find items that are cheerful. But here's one. Everyone knows exercise is good for physical health, but there is mounting evidence that is also crucial for your sexual health. Exercise improves your blood circulation, which is key to erections in men and sexual sensation in women. Previous studies have shown that men with a high waist circumference, or BMI, are 50% more likely to suffer from erectile dysfunction, and that roughly half of obese women experience problems with sexual activity, desire, and performance. In contrast, more recent research shows that women who exercise for six hours a week have lower sexual distress and resistance in their clitoral arteries. How they measure the resistance in those particular arteries, the article doesn't state. 
But they do note much higher levels of desire, arousal, lubrication, and orgasm. This is important, researchers say, well, not just researchers, because sexual activity has a significant impact on mental and emotional health. Stop the presses. But seriously, this piece quotes Karen Elbert, sexual wellness expert at Los Angeles' Cedars-Sinai's Medical Center, as telling CNN.com, this is truly a medical issue we should be dealing with as part of someone's overall health and well-being. But there's still a stigma around the topic. Anyway, we've said it before, and, and I guess I have to say it again right now. Exercise, one of the few things that's all it's cracked up to be. And as we segue from exercise into sports, we note that they just had, a, had some Olympics over in China. I confess to paying almost no attention to any of it. The idea of having medal counts, you know, which nation amasses the most gold, silver, bronze medals, just is, is disgusting. It's not supposed to be a jingoism. It's not supposed to be about chauvinistic displays of, you know, one nation being, you know, competing with another and exceeding it in, in, in sports. Bah humbug. Well, here's, here's some bad news regarding the Olympics. Back in 1960, the Olympics were held in Squaw Valley which has now apparently had it undergone a name change thanks to the actions of the woke. This correspondent has skied at Squaw, as it's called, on many occasions and find it to be a first-class place to uh, enjoy the sport of skiing. But maybe for not much longer, the evidence is coming in that Tahoe may become too warm to host the Olympic Games in the future. Of course, that didn't stop them in China. They just manufactured snow. But according to an article by Lisa Krieger in the East Bay Times, quote, because of climate change, the resort, formerly Squaw Valley, but now named Palisades Tahoe, is no longer a dependable site for the games with the risk of scant and soggy snow during more than half of February, according to an international team of researchers led by the University of Waterloo in Canada. With continued high emissions by mid-century, the Olympics will be too hot to handle for the resort. This is apparently not just happening in California. Reportedly, the 2014 Olympics in Sochi, Russia, involved 80% artificial snow. Four years later, the South Korean Pyeongchang Games had 90% made snow, and then here in China it was 100%. The article notes that by the end of the century, if the pace of global warming continues, only one former host venue, the mountainous northern Japanese city of Sapporo, will have enough snow to host the Winter Games. In other sports news, the NFL is being accused of racism, which is something of a head-scratcher if you've ever watched the NFL on television and noted that at least 70% of the players are black. But it is argued that uh, with only three of the 32 head coaches black, there, there might be an issue. John Devine, writing in the Miami Herald, said team ownership is the root of the problem. While the number of black coaches may be dismal, the number of black NFL owners is, well, zero. Indeed, they note of the 110 people who have ever owned a controlling interest in an NFL team, only two were non-white. Most of the owners are male billionaires over 60, and they generally hire people they feel comfortable with. And frankly, something this correspondent is not comfortable with regarding the NFL is the suspicious outcomes that took place during the playoffs this past season. Yes, you expect, you know, a Hollywood ending once in a while, 
when you're watching football. But when they all seem to have bizarre twists and turns and last minute, you know, cliffhanger changes of pace, you, you, you just have to wonder. So I asked some of the more diehard sports fans I know, people that enjoy NFL football, what they thought. Their initial reaction was, you're nuts. And then when they thought about it, and I said, well, didn't gambling all of a sudden become more legal all across the U.S. this last six months, unlike previous years? They said, yeah. Which prompted me to do something I've never done on this show before, which is reach into the good, the bad, and the ugly, and snatch one of the items and put it in a different location. Which I will now do with the item that was going to be in the good and bad and the ugly a good week for bookies, because the American Gaming Association estimated that a record 31.5 million Americans will wager $7.6 billion on the Super Bowl through licensed sportsbooks, office pools, bets with friends, and illegal bookmakers. You just have to wonder if $8 billion is hanging on, uh, on the outcome of a game that, well... People might want to influence the outcome of that game. And they might succeed. Think of that line from The Godfather 2, where the, uh, the Meyer Lansky-type character is talking to Michael Corleone and saying that one of his favorite people was Arnold Rothstein, because Arnold Rothstein fixed the 1919 World Series. It's an interesting story. They made a pretty good movie about it, too. Eight Men Out. You ever see it? If you haven't, you may want to check it out. As Mr. Merlin points out, yeah, they got caught. Anyway, since we straight into the good and the bad and the ugly, let, let's go back into it, Mr. McMillan. To replace the good item, which came out of the most recent issue of the week, I'm going to go back to their October 19th issue. That issue referred to what I'd have to say would be a good week for wokeness. With this item, the Art Institute of Chicago has fired more than 100 docents, citing a lack of racial diversity. The positions are unpaid and require 18 months of training. So, they're held mostly by well-educated, retired white women. Museum Chairman Robert Levy thanked the docents for their years of service, but explained that critical self-reflection and recuperative action is required if we are to remain relevant. We are somewhat skeptical here at Radio Parallax that, at least for 18 months, and and perhaps beyond, they're going to have a hard time locating enough undereducated, working people of color, in this case, I suppose, women and men of color, to fill those slots. But we wish them well in their attempt. And uh, more recently, we'd have to say it was a bad week. I'm not sure how to exactly label this one. A bad week for issues surrounding black women, perhaps? The story is this. Georgetown Law students have requested a designated place to, quote, break down, unquote, and cry after a lecturer questioned why President Biden has vowed to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. In a meeting with the school's dean, black students said the suspension of lecturer Ilya Shapiro 
yes, apparently suspended for asking the question of why it would have to be a black woman, was insufficient. They were asking for reparations, and those reparations should include a crying center. And it was an ugly week. Well, actually, I'm going back to the, the October 19th uh, issue because I don't, think, I don't think we did this one, Mr. McMillan. It was an ugly week that week for Nigels, with new data from the UK showing that no male babies were given the once popular name Nigel in 2020. For, for comparison, it was noted that 15 British babies born in 2020 were blessed with the first name Lucifer. Speaking of ugly weeks for, this past week was an ugly week for fun, with the news that an edict has come down from Afghanistan's ruling Taliban that their fighters can no longer carry machine guns and other firearms when visiting the country's amusement parks. Their reason is that it apparently unnerves other visitors. We'd have to agree, you know, it's one thing to go to the shooting gallery and pick off some ducks with an air gun. But machine gunning the whole rack with an AK, well, that, uh, make people nervous, make them uncomfortable. Mr. Merlin does note this is one of the few times that Radio Parallax finds itself in complete agreement with the Taliban leadership. Yay! And since we apparently never did this October 29th, good, bad, and ugly, I, I want to throw one more out there. It was a good week that week for sanity. Because at that time, the New York Times reported that then-Secretary of Defense Mark Esper blocked a plan by anti-immigration Trump aide Stephen Miller to send 250,000 U.S. troops, more than half the active army, to seal the entire 2,000-mile southern border with Mexico. And speaking of dictatorial rulers, and how's that for a segue, here's an item that really kind of won't me between the eyes. Evidently, election officials in the Philippines last week dismissed three more petitions seeking to disqualify the son of the late dictator Ferdinand Marcos from the upcoming May 9th presidential election. The ruling removed a major obstacle to his candidacy, which human rights groups oppose. The Commission on Elections spokesperson James Jimenez said the three petitions against Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr.'s candidacy were dismissed for lack of merit. The election commission rejected claims that Marcos Jr. should be removed from the presidential race and permanently barred from seeking public office due to a 1995 tax conviction and alleged falsehoods in his candidacy papers. Of course, we were thinking here at Radio Parallax, one reason that they may exclude Bongbong from the May 9th election that his father and mother were two of the biggest criminals ever to head a nation, and they bankrupted, absolutely bankrupted the Philippine nation due to their insatiable lust for stealing everything that wasn't nailed down. And in fact, if they could pry it up, well, it wasn't properly nailed down to begin with. The story is actually worse. It turns out that Bong Bong is apparently far and away the front runner for the upcoming election, is expected that he will become the next Philippine president. And um, I find this especially tragic because I've just finished a book titled The Marcos Dynasty, subtitled The Corruption of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos by Sterling Seagrave. Mr. Seagrave is someone who I didn't know anything about until a few weeks back when I stumbled upon his classic book, The Sung Dynasty. 
I've been devouring Mr. Seagrave's work, and um, I just can't recommend it highly enough. I'm a little stuck to, to find a quote from this 455 work of uh, Sterling Seagrave relative to Bong Bong's probable election, future election as president. Mr. Millen has pointed out that uh, apparently Duterte has become the president of the Philippines thanks to the help of the Marcoses, and I guess in turn he has greased the skids for their return to power. There's a documentary out there that he has seen, but I have not, that I'll have to watch and maybe report on as we slide toward May 9th. It's pretty depressing to look at governments around the world and uh, note that Hindu nationalism is um, running India. The policy of the BJP of putting Hindus first in India is um, not doing good things for the Muslim population. Meanwhile, in Nicaragua, any politician who's maneuvering to challenge Daniel Ortega for the presidency of the country finds himself charged with sedition and thrown in jail. One thing one learns from reading uh, the works of Sterling Steegrave is that power begats money and money begats power. And it ties in, of course, to the golden rule, that being that the guy that's got the gold makes the rules. But you know, you don't really need to go to, uh, to Asia to find uh, some remarkable examples of dirty money and dirty politics. Some remarkable things took place in Alameda County, the county I grew up in. In this case, I'm talking about a rather convoluted deal that took place in Oakland to lure the Raiders back from Los Angeles. The Raiders, as you, you may know, stiffed Oakland back in, I think it was the late 70s, to move to Los Angeles and then played a lot of cities in California off one another to induce Oakland to give them a deal they they couldn't turn down, and so they moved back for 20 or so years before stiffing the city again and moving off to Las Vegas. In doing so, they're apparently leaving the county with something like $189 million in limbo that have to be covered by others who are not the Raiders. It's a pretty complicated mess. I can't say that, that I understand it. But it's so intriguing, I think I should learn about it and, and then tell you, dear listener, what, I, what I've learned in some future installment of this program. It would be good, too, if I could learn about what's going on in Silicon Valley and explain how it is that these tech companies are manipulating stock prices to their benefit. This allows many of the uber-wealthy to pay no income taxes because they don't have income in the traditional sense of the word. But to really cover that topic, I need to bring in an expert. I don't, I don't know who that'll be, but I'm, I'm going to start... I'm going to do a star search to see if I can someone that can, uh, that can talk to us. While I do that, I should find someone else in the tech industry that can explain something about, uh, about chips. Some, some headaches are emerging in the world of chip manufacture that have some folks nervous. And I think perhaps, perhaps we all need to be nervous. I'm, I'm not sure. But I think I'm going to quote from a piece that was in the New York Times by author John Markoff, who is a reporter in Silicon Valley. He's been there for 40 years, written five books about the tech industry. Here's what Markov says. Imagine for a moment that millions of computer chips inside the servers that power the largest data centers in the world had rare, almost undetectable flaws. And the only way to find the flaws was to throw those chips at giant computing problems that would have been unthinkable just a decade ago. As the tiny switches in computer chips have shrunk to the width of a few atoms, The reliability of chips has become another worry for the people who run the biggest networks in the world. Companies like Amazon, 
Facebook, Twitter, and many others have experienced surprising outages over the last year. These outages have had several causes, like programming mistakes and congestion on the networks, but there's a growing anxiety that as cloud computing networks have become larger and more complex, they are still dependent at the most basic level on computer chips that are now less reliable and in some cases less predictable. In the past year, researchers at both Facebook and Google have published studies describing computer hardware failures whose causes have not been easy to identify. The problem, they argued, was not in the software. It was somewhere in the computer hardware made by various companies. Google declined to comment on its study, while Facebook, now known as Meta, did not return requests for a comment on its study. The piece quotes a Stanford University electrical engineer saying they're seeing these silent errors essentially coming from the underlying hardware, to which he added people believe that manufacturing defects are tied to these so-called silent errors and they cannot be easily caught. Here's a question I don't know the answer to, and I, I, I hope that someone listening who is a computer person, electrical engineer perhaps, could write us and answer this question. Does the silicon in computer chips wear out? Can you, can you wear out a chip through use? Isn't it reasonable to expect you could produce a chip and then it will just work forever? I don't, I don't think so. But I don't really know. This article notes that at the beginning of the semiconductor era, engineers worried about the possibility of cosmic rays occasionally flipping a single transistor and changing the outcome of a computation. Now, they're worried that the switches themselves are increasingly becoming less reliable. According to the piece, the Facebook researchers even argue that the switches are becoming more prone to wearing out, that the lifespan on computer memories or processors may be shorter than previously believed. We need to know more about this. I think we all need to know more about this. The article closes by, by quoting someone who runs a company in Los Gatos that specializes in software for companies trying to minimize hardware outages. The chief executive said, um, uh, it's going to be an imposing challenge, saying, quote, it will be a little bit like changing an engine while an airplane is still flying, unquote. All right, I'm told I've got about four minutes left and I want to do something a little more whiz-bang than pondering chip futures. So we're going to go to our all standby, the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series. A section titled Lame Excuses offers the excuse, who it was said by, and the story behind it. The lame excuse is, I was playing a practical joke on some friends and broke into the wrong room. This was said by Eric Sindor Theorgood of Gulf Breeze, Florida. The story is that in November of 2012, at around 3 a.m., Theorgood put a pillowcase over his head with two eye holes cut out. And I'm I'm sorry, but you know this is going to be good. He then climbed up the second floor balcony of a quality inn and entered through an open door and started ransacking the room. The family that was staying in the room... A husband, wife, and a toddler woke up, and the husband then escorted Thurgood back out the balcony door and over the railing. Thurgood was injured in the fall, but managed to run away. As he did so, he ditched the pillowcase. Investigators later found it and matched the bloodstains to Thurgood's DNA. He'd apparently been in trouble with the law before. After his face was then displayed on the evening news, 
He called the police to say he had nothing to do with the break-in. He said, I wasn't even there. When officers told him they'd found his blood at the scene, he suddenly remembered being there, but said it was just a practical joke. He was trying to play it on some friends who were staying in another room. When he was asked to provide the names of the friends, Thurgood's <laughs> mind went blank. Notes Uncle John, he was arrested. And believe it or not, we can top that one. The lame excuse is, I tripped and fell into the lifeboat. It was said by Francesco Cettino, captain of the doomed Italian cruise ship Costa Concordia. The story is that around dinner time on January 13, 2012, Captain Cettino deliberately veered from the cruise line's pre-programmed route off the coast of Tuscany to get within a stone's throw of an island of Giglio. The reason? So he could wave to his friend, a retired captain who lived on the island. Cettino was, in fact, on the phone with his friend when the 952-foot $569 million Costa Concordia hit a rock. The ship lost power, drifted until it struck a reef, capsized, and partially sank. Uncle John's notes that by that time, Chitino was no longer on board. When Italian Port Authority discovered that fact, the officer scolded him over the radio. Get the bleep back on your ship. Chitino answered he preferred to conduct the evacuation efforts from the shore. The officer disagreed and reported the captain. Later, Shatino said he'd wanted to stay on the ship, but we were catapulted into the water. That story fell apart when witnesses reported that Shatino boarded a lifeboat from the deck while there were still hundreds of people trying to escape. So, he naturally, he changed his story. I was helping some passengers put the boat into the sea. The mechanism for lowering it became blocked. We had to force it. Suddenly, the system unblocked itself, and I tripped and found myself inside the lifeboat. When none of the passengers could corroborate his story, Shatino was arrested and charged with causing the disaster, interfering with rescue operations, and abandoning the ship. Oh, the captain, he came a-running up on deck. He was a-looking kind of pale around the neck. As he stood there shouting orders, I stood splashing in the water, and I asked exactly what you might expect. That about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Our thanks to Greg Palace for speaking with us again and taking time from his valuable work. And Raising Hell, which he does very well. And yeah, check out his site, gregpalace.com. I'm Douglas Everett, and my excuse is that the bed was on fire when I got into it. And we'll leave you to fill in the story. We'll see you next week.